word. Do you not agree? It certainly is. It's the time of year that families and friends get together. It's a time of wishing everyone good cheer. And it's a time of wonder. We have all these images around us of these idyllic rural settings. And everyone seems so happy and so generous. If you're online, write down in the comments some of your best memories of Christmas or some of the things you love. And here in person, tell the person beside you something you love about this time of year. Go ahead, tell the person beside you. Yes, you can tell by the chatter that you agree with me that Christmas really is the best time of the year. Or is it? Yes, we have the images of Christmas being wonderful. But the reality is, sometimes Christmas can be very stressful. The decor that we put so much time and effort into does not always hold up. We do have Christmas disasters. For some, fighting within the family ruins the Christmas celebrations. And in other places, Christmas does not look very much like peace and goodwill. Not so much at all. And then, there are times, and for many of here are experiencing this this year, that you're going to have to face your first Christmas without a loved one. And for you, I sincerely say I am so sorry for your sadness because it must be so hard to face Christmas without that loved one. In addition to that, we have poverty. We have injustice. These don't go away because it's that wonderful time of the year. So I must ask, is this really the most wonderful time of the year? Or maybe it's not. This wonderful time of year does not shield us from sorrow and sadness and grief and broken relationships. Real life suffering is going to continue right through this season. You know how they always have the Christmas movies where the ending is always perfect. Every relationship is beautiful. The man meets the woman, they fall in love, there's some kind of a hardship, they go away, they come back and it's ending. Every problem is solved. Everything happens in 60 minutes or in an hour and a half or whatever it is, but real life is not like that. Some of us are going to have to go through this season with grief. It's not going to go away. Some of us are carrying a lot of sorrow on our shoulders, and that's not going to go away. We have pressures on the personal level. And on the world stage, we have poverty, we have war, we have natural disasters. These things are not going away. So if that's the case, this is my question. What's the joy of Christmas? What is it that we spend about a month celebrating here in Canada? What does the tidings of great joy mean that we sing about? And I think for us to understand this joy, we need to look beyond the glittering, the idyllic, the enticing, and the welcoming. And we need to focus on the narrative of Jesus' birth. And now I know that sometimes you see these images of Jesus' birth and everything looks clean and happy and sterile, but the reality is the first nativity was anything but. It was probably dirty because it was a barn after all. 
It was probably dark because they didn't have electricity. It was probably cold because it would have been just like a, a hollowed out area next to a building. It wouldn't have had doors or anything like that. Uh, there was a lot of animals around, so it was probably humid and definitely smelly. Not what you would think an image of what we'd call the most wonderful time of the year. But we need to look at this, and we need to look at the scripture verses that was read to you this morning. But we're not going to look at it from the perspective of humans. We're going to look at it from the perspective of heaven. And we're going to see a dichotomy between the grandeur and the lowliness. From an earthly perspective, when we talk about this conversation between the angel and Mary, we see just that. We see a young woman in some far-off little village uh, in obscurity having an encounter with an, an, an angel. But what about from heaven? What is heaven like as this is playing out on earth? Have you ever been part of something really big? Like maybe planning a wedding. I think some of you are still are in that right now. Or maybe for you, it's not a wedding, but maybe it was uh, you were planning a tournament of some sort. Or maybe at your work, you had this huge international project that you were working on. Or whatever it is. You put so much time and effort into it. You think so much about it. You think about all the details. You play through in your mind all the possible outcomes, and you work through all of them. You think of everything, and you prepare for it. And as the day approaches, it consumes you more and more and more because all your mind is on it, you're excited about it, you may be a little bit nervous about it, but this anticipation is there and the time is coming. And then the day dawns. And it may be a little bit surreal for you, especially, I think, if it's a wedding. You think, wow, it's here, it's finally here. You've been planning it for two years. There's a buzz in the air. There may be a little bit of nervous excitement, but that's what it's like. And I imagine, maybe, this is what heaven was like when this was playing out on earth, when this angel came to speak to Mary. This conversation between the angel and Mary was in God's plan for generations, for centuries. It was foreshadowed right from the beginning of time. Jesus, God becoming human, the greatest dichotomy between grandeur and lowly. And we can see in the passage that was read to you earlier, a continually weaving of this grandeur and lowliness. So let's just quickly take a look at some of the parts of this passage. Of Luke 1, 26 to 38. First thing we notice is that it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, stop. It was just a statement, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Nothing major. But let's look at it a little bit more closely. In the previous chapter, we learned a little bit about Elizabeth. We learned that Elizabeth was approximately 90 years old. 90. 90-year-olds 90 don't have babies. It's not common. This is a miracle. And you see how this great miracle is woven into something that's happening on Earth. It's playing out, and it's so casual. It's just a statement. Elizabeth's pregnancy. And later on in the passage, the angel says to Mary, and Elizabeth, your relative, is also with child, the one who everyone thought was barren, for God's word will never fail. 
You see this grand, you see what's happening out in heaven and it's playing out on earth and it seems kind of small. It seems like a, just a one statement. But what a miracle has just taken place. And then there's Gabriel. Have you ever, ever stopped to think about who is Gabriel? Gabriel is, an, is the angel that was sent to give Mary this news. He's mentioned in other places of the Bible. He's mentioned in Daniel, and he's mentioned in Luke. And at Luke, it says, he is the one that stands in the presence of God. And in Daniel, it says, Messiah the prince was telling him. A man's voice says, Gabriel, go tell the man the meaning of the vision. So we see that Gabriel is not just any angel. He's actually named. And when you're thinking about angels, I want you to think about this one. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the high priests have come to take him away, and then Peter cuts off the, the ear of the servant, and his disciples are trying to fight for him, he says, do you not know that I can call on my father and he will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Do you know what 12 le legions is? I didn't either. I had to look it up. It's about 72,000. Okay, so here's Jesus standing and saying, do you not know that at a moment's notice, I can have 72,000 angels at my disposal? That's a lot. And we see Gabriel. Out of 72,000 Gabriel is chosen to send this message. He is in the presence of God. He is a mighty angel, and this is big news. From heaven's perspective, this is big, big news. This is great celebration. This is something that they've been anticipating and waiting, and the time has come. It's unfolding. Gabriel is coming down to tell Mary. So they send Gabriel. They don't send an unnamed angel. This is pretty magnificent. This is grandeur coming down in lowliness. And I want to talk a little bit how magnificent might that be in heaven. I want you to consider Isaiah 6, 1 to 4. And I have a picture up there for you to see. And this is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was seated on his throne. His robe filled the temple, and he was highly honored. Above him were seraphs, or in other words, angels. Each of them had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they were flying. And they were crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who rules over all. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of the voices caused the stone door frame to shake. The temple was filled with smoke. Take a few seconds, if you have to close your eyes, and try to imagine that in your mind. How magnificent is heaven? How magnificent is God that all these angels are crying day and night, holy, holy are you, Lord. Holy are you, Lord. How magnificent. And the temple was filled with smoke. I think if we walked into that setting, we'd probably fall down and feel like an ant. So tiny. But that's not everything in this passage. 
We notice in this passage, um, Chris, can I just ask you to back up one pass, uh, slide, sorry, uh, another one? One more? Thank you, sorry about that. We also point out, uh, I want you to point out Nazareth there, it's in a village. But where does this angel come to? He comes to Galilee. He didn't go to the center of civilization. He didn't go to a vogue place like Paris, like everybody wants to go to Paris, or Australia. But who wants to go to Ponta Delgada? Where is that place? Okay. He didn't go to a place like that. He didn't go to a, a place where it is the center of power. He went to some obscure little village. But what do we learn about Nazareth? In John 1, it says, um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was the question that somebody asked. And in Matthew 2, it also refers to Jesus, he shall be called a Nazarene. Do you see how God in heaven has put this plan into action and he's been foreshadowing it for centuries and it's all coming out. It's like that big event you planned and it's the day of. All the pieces are falling in place. Okay? Jesus was going to be a Nazarene. That was prophesied. And lo and behold, where does the angel come to? Nazareth. And then we come to the virgin. In Isaiah 7:14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Just for a second, what might Mary have figured out when she thought upon these words that the angel gave her and she understood, hey, I'm that virgin. That's amazing. Like, I'm the one that God has chosen. I'm the one that they've been talking about since I was a child, growing up as a Jewish young lady, learning every time I went to the synagogue. And all the hope of Jewish people is on this Messiah that's coming. And I'm that virgin. That must have been amazing. This is another miracle in itself. The grandeur of heaven coming down to the lowliness of earth. And then we have the descendant of David. Well, we find out through this story that Mary is engaged to Joseph, who is a descendant of David. And in Jeremiah, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right. So again, another detail. Just like your big event that you're planning, all the details have been thought of, and they're coming together. This is not a random telling of a story. It is God's most final, most complete. It's God's greatest plan to redeem world from its fallen state. It's the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy are pointing to this moment. It is God's intentional, carefully planned, self-sacrificing, loving plan to eradicate the dominance of evil. This is awesome grandeur coming to us in great humility. Now, can I have the next slide? Yep. So we see that God comes to earth. But he doesn't just come to earth. He comes as an infant. And now I want you just to put your attention to the screens for this little video.
third is that video. Some of you are probably thinking, oh, it's so cute. <laughs> but this is what I really want you to think of. That infant is a newborn. It is so fragile. If that infant was left alone, that infant would die. That infant has a, small, a very soft spot on the head because the plates have not been fused together yet. And that infant can really die quite quickly with a bang on the head. That child is completely dependent upon the parents to take care of it. And I think about that. And I think about the angel coming to Mary. And I'm thinking about what it's like in heaven that God is willing to come as an infant. I mean, this is God. He created everything. He could have come in any way he wanted. Why didn't he just come as an adult? Why did he choose to come as an infant? How much humility does this take on God's part? Coming as an infant means he's coming as one of the most vulnerable people in our society, the unborn and the newborn. He's helpless and he's vulnerable. In a relationship between a parent and an infant, it is the parent that has the power and it is the parent who holds control. The parent tells the baby or the little child when to go to bed, when, the, when you have to stop playing with your friends and it's time to go home, when to eat, what to eat, what to wear, the parent holds the power. Look at this from, God, from heaven's perspective. It says in Psalm 139 that God knows our thoughts, that God knows the words that we're going to speak before we even speak them. Another place in scripture tells us that God knows every hair on our head. Jesus knew all this about Mary. Knew it all. He created her. But yet he comes down to the level of being an infant, where she takes the role of being in control, where she is the one with the power. He created her. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the control, and he gives it all up. He not only came to earth, but he comes as a most vulnerable, vulnerable infant. He, ex he came in such a way as an angel, sorry, as an infant, and experienced the full range of human experience. So he experienced the little child. Like he went through that stage of losing his teeth and getting his bigger teeth. He went through all of that. He went through puberty. He grew up as a teenager. He experienced the full range. He could have come as an adult. He could have come with one of having superiority and knowing how to redeem this world. For he is superior, and he does know how to redeem the world. But that's not the way he chose to come. It reminds me sometimes of um, sometimes when uh, developed nations try to help um, developing nations. Sometimes we, as a developed nation, will go into places, but we come in with a superior attitude, like we're the saviors. We come in. We tell you what to do. We tell you how to do it. We don't take into consideration your thoughts. It reminds me of an example uh, when an agency decided to donate some mosquito nets to some smaller place in the world. And donated a whole bunch of them, thinking, oh, this is going to solve their problem. They can have these mosquito nets, and then they will not have to uh, be bitten by the mosquitoes, and then their uh, diseases will go down, and they'll be saved. Fun wonderful idea. 
And then they went back a few years later and realized that no one was using them skittle nets, and they wondered why. Well, upon further investigation, they realized that the color of the nets symbolized death to this village. So no one wanted to use them because they all thought they were going to die. Okay, and that's just a really simple experience about someone coming in with that attitude of, we know it all. We know how to help you. And yes, it may have very, been very good intentioned. But when we look at Jesus, he knows how to redeem this world. He created it. He created it as a beautiful place, but we're the ones who messed it up. And he is in the process of redeeming it. But he is also respecting the fact that he has given the world to us. And he is respecting our uh, autonomy. So he comes to this world in such a humble fashion. Not only does he come and leave that grandeur, um, he, he gave up the 72,000 angels. He gave it all up. He gave up all those angels praising him night and day to come here. And he came as an infant. So I ask then, I go back to my question, what is the joy of Christmas? The joy of Christmas is reminding ourselves of the gentle, vulnerable Jesus who gave up his grandeur to be with us, to share our joys and our sorrows, and to be susceptible to all the human constraints, to be touched by the brokenness of our world, to remind us that his kingdom will one day fully come, and then all injustices will be made right, and all our tears will be wiped away. We sometimes ask why. Why, God? Why? Why did you allow my mother to die? Why, God, did I lose my job? Why am I facing this illness? We have anguish. Just this week, I was asked to pray for a family whose 16-year-old son took his life. Just this week. And I pondered that, and I was so sad. I was thinking to myself, this is the most wonderful time of the year. But yet, there was young, one young man who was so desperate, who had no hope that he took his life. And of that family, how broken are they at this time? We want, that, we want the answer to that question, why? Why? Because we think that when we get that answer, we'll be okay. But Jesus says, the world is broken, and suffering comes in this world. But I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to be with you. Not in a dominant way, but in a very humble way. And he comes alongside us, and he shares our sorrow. He's shown us by doing it himself. And now that he's gone to heaven, and he's left his spirit behind, he's still with us in our sorrows, in our joys, in our griefs. He's with us, with us. So as I ponder this, I think to myself, what is the fitting response to this? Let's look at what Mary said. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her. Her response was complete submission and worship. And later on in the chapter, it says, Mary says, my soul gives glory to the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she goes on to explain what God has done for her. And she goes on to say, the mighty one who has done great things for me, his name is holy. She got it. She was an uneducated person, 
She had a sheltered lifestyle, because women had sheltered lifestyles in those days. They were not educated. But she was able to make the connections between the prophecies and the announcement of the birth of Jesus. She understood that this was the Messiah. She understood that she was the virgin. God gave her a glimpse of his big picture. And she was able to make the connections of the Old Testament prophecy. Compare that with the religious leaders of the day. They were very educated. They had all kinds of privileges. They were not sheltered. They were exposed to all kinds of information, so they knew better. But then when Jesus was standing right in front of them, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah. You see, it's because their hearts were very different. Mary was very humble. The Pharisees were not. And if you look at Mary, you can say, hmm... She said, my heart rejoices in God. But her life was not joyful. I mean, there were many moments of joy in her life, but the Bible records that things were tough for her. I mean, she was probably just an ordinary person doing ordinary things of life, and all of a sudden, she has this visit from an angel, and everything changes. So shortly after everyone finds out she's pregnant, her fiancé wants to divorce her. Definitely not happy. That was not a happy time for her. That would have been a very difficult time for her. And then comes the time when the child's about to be born. Oh my goodness. Of any time this could have happened, it happens late in her pregnancy. She has to go to Bethlehem. She has to travel there with her husband, uh, Joseph. He did decide to marry her. To be registered because a census is being taken. So everybody in that line that family line has to go to Bethlehem. This is hard treading. This is donkey. This takes about nine days of travel. And probably for them, it took a little longer because she was probably not walking as fast as everyone else. And they get to Bethlehem, and there's no place for them. But wait a second, I ask. What happened to Joseph's family? They had to make the same trek. Where were they in Bethlehem? This is... Near East, Middle Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is one of the greatest values. Was there not anybody who could say, hey, take my room, or hey, we'll shove over and make room for you? We're talking about a culture where hospitality is key. We're talking about a place where Joseph's family is all there. None of them, not one, was able to say, hey, come and live with us. Well, they were living under a cloud of shame because everyone thought that Mary's pregnancy was done, was, uh, happened before they were married. Definitely, definitely hard times that they went by. Mary could have said, why, God? I obeyed you, and now my life is terrible. She didn't say that. She remembers how God was great and how he could be trusted, and for this, she rejoiced. So the joy of Christmas is about Jesus, what he has done for us, his presence now while we wait for the complete fulfillment of his promised restoration, to the place where there will be no more tears. We can rejoice in what he has done. He has humbled himself to such an extent for our sakes. God, the amazing, omnipotent, omnipresent God who created everything, God all-powerful, God all-holy, comes to dwell among us. He comes to sit with us in our joys and our sorrows. And sometimes when our sorrows are so great, 
He'll just come and sit with us. What's the proper response to this Savior? Mary's response was surrender and worship. How about you? How about me? Sometimes we want to accept Jesus. Sometimes we want a little bit of Jesus in our lives. But we want that image of that little infant where we keep the control. Where we're the ones to tell Jesus when to come into our lives, what to be involved in, and when to stay away. That's not what Mary did. And that infant is no longer an infant. The religious leaders of Mary's day remained in control. They missed out on the Messiah. So the answer to our question that we posed at the beginning, what is the joy of Christmas? The joy of Christmas is Jesus. It's reminding ourselves that Jesus is with us, even in the, even in the times of our sorrow. And the proper response to that is complete surrender and worship. So let us worship him now. Thank you. <laughs>